forensic genealogy, the process of identifying unknown offenders through their DNA by finding genetic relatives and building out family trees. It's taken the crime-solving world by storm. How does it work, and what are these cases all about? Find out on Season 4 of DNA ID, the only podcast that exclusively covers the revolutionary technique that is forensic genealogy. This season, you'll hear more than 20 solved cases like Pamela Kahanis, Rachel Johnson, and Krista Martin. And of course, we'll continue with our coverage of Doe identifications that we began in Season 3. Don't miss the Season 4 premiere of DNA ID on Monday, January 29th, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Hi, Amy. Today's episode takes us to Victoria, Australia in the year 2002. We'll be looking at the Monash University massacre that killed two students and wounded five others. Now, unfortunately, there were no biographies that I could find about any of the victims to focus on. So sadly, we can't give any more information than their names in this podcast. But if any of our listeners are from Australia, and we know that some are, and they know anything about the victims, we would love to do an update to this episode to include information about their lives and legacies. While I don't think most Americans have heard of this case. It was a bit of a watershed for Australian academics. And interestingly, the perpetrator, who we'll go into more detail about later, came up in the headlines again as recent as 2015 for yet another violent act. Amy, have you ever heard of Monash University? No, I've never heard of this case or that university. I hadn't either before I did the research. So why don't I tell you a little bit about the university before we get started? Named after the Australian World War I general, Sir John Monash, Monash University's first campus was founded in 1958 in an area right outside Melbourne, known as Clayton. It opened to students in 1961 with what some might call a peculiar style of teaching. Unlike other universities of its time, Amy, Monash wanted to foster active, independent learning, and they made lecture attendance optional instead of mandatory. Our students would love that. I was thinking the same thing. They definitely would. It's very interesting. I think about that. If we didn't have mandatory attendance, what percentage of your students do you think would show up on a regular basis? Maybe 20%. Do you think it's that low? Oh, gosh. Okay. I thought it'd be more like 50 or 60, but... Yeah. Mm. I wonder what kind of different environment it fosters. Um, so some fun facts about the university. Even at the school's opening, around 10% of the student body were from overseas, which is pretty unusual for a, uh, for a new university. 
1979, Monash's research lab was one of the first to produce a successful IVF pregnancy in vitro fertilization. Oh, that's interesting. Very neat, right? It didn't result in a live birth, but by 1980, they did succeed in an IVF live birth, launching the field of reproductive technology, which I think is very cool for a new university. Yeah. They also had one of the largest student protests against the Vietnam War of any other university in the world. So this is a very diverse, active, innovative university. Um, Monash continued to expand in the 80s and 90s, creating a campus in Malaysia in 1988 and several satellite campuses around Victoria State in the mid-90s. Currently, Monash has six campuses in Australia, one in Malaysia, and one in South Africa. But aside from their enormous footprint, Monash is known as a research school, particularly in the area of climate change and geopolitical security. Um, They're hugely popular to international students, and many hopefuls flock to Monash for the opportunity to study under their professors and work in their labs. So, uh, you know, I love to obviously Google and YouTube some of the research, and a lot of their, um, well, their campus looks beautiful, but a lot of their advertisements are international students. So I think this really is a great hub. Yep. Okay, so let's turn to their students. One such student was Juan Yuan Xiang, who went by Alan. So we'll be using the name Alan for the remainder of this episode. Originally from China, Alan and his mother moved to Australia in 1988 as permanent residents in order for him to attend Monash University as a commerce major. Alan was also a little older than the average college student. Um, Amy, he was 35 years old at the time of events we'll be discussing. While there's no information on Alan's past, neighbors who lived next door to him in the off-campus apartment he shared with his mom described him as a very quiet, friendly guy who smiled a lot. So it doesn't seem that many people knew him. Um, However, while many of the neighbors found him to be a pleasant person, they all agreed that he had a lot of difficulty communicating. He had a hard time acquiring English as his second language, and several of his neighbors described him as as being frustrated Uh, when they didn't seem to understand him, which you could probably understand when you're trying to communicate. If someone doesn't understand you, of course, there's a frustration. Nevertheless, Alan still managed to be an honor student in his commerce program and successfully completed four years of study at the university. However, unbeknownst to his fellow students and teachers, Alan's academic success apparently wasn't enough to make him feel that he had a bright future in Melbourne. There was something else going on in his mind that led him to do the unthinkable. So here's what happened. On October 21st, 2002, at 11.20, Alan entered a classroom on the sixth floor of the Menzies Commerce Building, where he was supposed to be giving his final project, and that was an oral presentation. Instead of presenting, he stood on a table at the front of the room and opened fire on his classmates. Alan killed one of his neighbors and fellow commerce major, Shi Hu Wu, who went by William, and an Australian native, Stephen Chan. As Alan emptied the magazine of his first handgun around the room, he also injured five other people. Is there any indication that he was targeting those particular people? We'll get to that in a couple of minutes, but a fair question. So let me tell you about the other victims here whose names and injuries we do know. 
Dr. Lee Gordon Brown was shot in the arm and knee. Student Daniel Urbach was wounded in the shoulder and arm. Student Lori Brown was wounded in the leg and abdomen. Student Christine Young was shot in the face. And student Lee Dot Hyun, who was discharged from hospital within a day. But as Allen paused to change out his handgun to another loaded weapon, Dr. Gordon Brown and two non-wounded students named Alistair Boast, who was trained in Kung Fu, and Bradley Thompson disarmed Allen and tackled him to the ground. Quite the bravery here. Incredible. Yep. As the sound of gunfire resonated throughout the building, another professor from the classroom across the hall, Dr. Inder, ran in and assisted the students with holding Allen down after Dr. Gordon Brown collapsed from blood loss. While they waited for the police, another student and the university's administrator, who happened to be on the sixth floor when shots rang out, administered first aid to the victims. Now, the police arrived within 15 minutes of the original distress call, and Allen was apprehended. And I'd just like to take a moment to focus on the faculty and students who took the shooter down, regardless of their own wounds and terror, to keep him from killing anybody else. It is really remarkable. And the police later emphasized how this situation could have been so much more deadly had it not been for the brave actions of those students and professors. Now, as for the rest of the school, as soon as the shots rang out, 11-story Menzies building housing over 2,000 students devolved into complete chaos, as you can probably imagine. Students were jamming the escalators trying to escape, and no one knew what was going on or where the gunman was. And Megan, this was before schools had plans for what to do during an active shooter. Yes, I was thinking about that as, as well. Yeah, there was no plan uh, from what I could observe from an active shooter. A student named Corinne, who was later interviewed by the media, described the scene. Quote, nobody knew what was happening. It was mass confusion and terror. There was nothing broadcast. There were people at the bottom of the escalators trying to get student numbers, which was clogging the escalators. Half of my class was still up in the building. I'm assuming the students didn't know at this point that the gunman had been apprehended and they didn't know if there was still danger. That's correct. That's why she was saying there was kind of chaos because mm -hmm. nothing had been announced. So they didn't know what was going on. There were also erroneous reports that circulated that the gunman was on the roof, while others claimed that the gunman was on the student union building across the street. Um, mass chaos, Amy. And as mm -hmm. the building evacuated, the students stood in large groups out on the lawn waiting for instructions that basically never came which only created further chaos as the students, other students were screaming that they'd been shot by the gunman on the roof. So even after the police apprehended the shooter, most of the university, as you asked, did not realize it. And they, they believed that the gunman was still at large. An employee of the Menzies building says that he went outside with the students and simply went home because he had no idea what the protocol was supposed to be for this kind of situation. However, once Allen, the shooter, was apprehended, the university administration brought the situation under control, canceling classes for the rest of the day and setting up five counseling stations around the campus for students and faculty to work through the trauma. But I guess the question here is what could have caused such a travesty to happen? While the university had weathered several violent student protests in the past, this shooting didn't seem to have any rhyme or reason. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. 
Allen had been an exemplary student by all accounts. And while a quiet person, his professors and classmates had found him to be a polite, nice young man. So why had he tried to kill his whole class? Witnesses from the classroom who were later interviewed said that Allen had shouted, you never understand me, before he opened fire on them. Police had difficulties in their initial interviews with Allen, and even though, or and even through the use of a Chinese interpreter, they found that he wouldn't give them many clues as to why he'd shot anyone. He did leave a note, however, Amy, for the police after his first interview that stated, I finally ended W.W.'s life. Police thought this was a reference to that student I had mentioned by the name of William Wu, um, and this was one of the students that Allen had killed. And a later search of Allen's apartment turned up several typewritten notes that had been taped to his wardrobe that included things like, quote, just pick up a gun, kill all those WWs until there is no WW in the world anymore. And to kill WW is the responsibility defined in my destiny. Okay, so it seems like WW is a class of people, not one individual person. It was one person, but probably who the one person represented. Yes, the class. Mm -hmm. But you had asked before, too, was he targeting a particular person? So I think this might have been the source. Interestingly, by all accounts, William Wu may not have been friends with Alan, but they seemed friendly and congenial towards towards each other in public. Mm-hmm. And Alan didn't seem to have connections to the other victims, aside from them being in the same major. So what had suddenly prompted this behavior and these notes, you know, the activity leading up to it? In an interview with World Socialist website, Then-Student Association spokesperson Liz Thompson explained that Monash had recently been experiencing a high number of international students failing out because of issues with English language proficiency. And of these cases, many of these students were then failing late in their academic careers. So it doesn't seem, I don't understand exactly the way this university operates, but It seems like it's not fair to admit students who are not prepared. Um, Maybe they should offer ESL classes or some way. Or maybe, yeah, it it doesn't seem fair to the students. Yeah, they were recruiting international students who weren't proficient in language and and then failing them. So, yes, I would have to agree with you. And, and of course, you know, failing late in their academic careers is extremely detrimental. Uh, failing a course for international students can result in deportation. So think about our own students and the panic they feel when they fail. Now imagine the consequences aren't just failing a class, but at deportation. I'm sorry if you said this, but was he currently um, doing poorly in that particular class or any of his classes? So they said he was exemplary, but he was struggling. So I don't believe his academic performance was at the top of his class. I don't know that he was failing out, though, either. But he was frustrated by the the barriers to uh, or the language barriers that he was having in understanding his academics. And maybe for him, his grade slipping meant that, you know, the end was near as far as, you know, being exactly kicked Uh, out. And he had he had permanent Australian residency. So there was a ton of pressure Um. Because, you know, there was a ton of pressure as even if he was able to graduate, having poor English skills or English language skills would make him ineligible for most Australian jobs except unskilled work. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was an extreme, I would say, amount of pressure on him as well. 
Allen also took out loans through the university's higher education contribution scheme that he would have to pay back in full, regardless of his lack of job prospects, should he fail that final class. And that was his concern, or one of his concerns. Now, we don't know much about his background or family lifestyle, so we can't say for sure if there was an external pressure on him from family not to fail, um, or if he had high expectations for himself that perhaps he couldn't bring himself to admit. Um, But we do know that statistically, Asian students tend to have more external pressure placed on them both culturally and from their family. NYU's Counseling Center published an article in 2017 breaking down the kinds of pressures Asian American students can feel at college. And I think this might apply here as well. Traditional Chinese parenting can include, quote, strict discipline and unyielding sky-high expectations. Many students have these expectations for themselves as well and can feel overwhelmed, anxious, and hopeless when they are faced with anything that looks like failure. Think about this, Amy. This was the final class, but even if he wasn't failing, this was an oral presentation and he could not, he had real significant issues communicating. So I think this might have been the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah, I wonder if he I wonder if he spoke with the professor at all or if the professor noticed he was struggling with the language. And I'm not, I'm not saying this is anyone's fault other than Alan's. Right. But I'm wondering how many um, things fell through the cracks here. Yeah. I mean, it's it's always good when we talk about these cases to think about the prevention ahead of time because it could help with future um, future tragedies as well to talk about the prevention. So, yeah. So as the murder trial neared, Allen's defense team put in a plea of not guilty by reason of mental impairment, and he was sent to a psychiatric facility for evaluation. During this time, his doctors diagnosed him with paranoid delusional disorder. So I just want to talk for a minute about what this what this means. So this is different from schizophrenia. Um, paranoid delusional disorder is a type of psychotic disorder in which a person experiences non-bizarre delusions, meaning that they have delusions of things that may happen in real life, but are untrue, heavily exaggerated, or can be misinterpreted perceptions of experiences. Um, People with this disorder can function completely normally and don't necessarily show any odd or unusual behaviors until they become fixated on a specific delusion. Mm -hmm. There are several types, by the way. There's um, erotomatic, grandiose, jealous, persecutory, um, mixed. So this is a little bit more nuanced than we might think. Interestingly, people who are prone to this disorder can be people experiencing extreme isolation or perceived isolation. So these can definitely include immigrants suffering from a language barrier, um, possibly people who are deaf, the elderly, and people with visual impairment. So again, these are communities of people who may feel isolated for various reasons. During Allen's trial, which began on June 15, 2004, the prosecution, known as the Crown in Australia, agreed with the defense that Allen had been mentally ill on the day of the massacre. Megan, was there a forensic evaluation? Yes. So instead of calling any witnesses, the Crown had three psychiatrists testify to Allen's mental state at the time of the murders. And they described to the jury that the paranoid delusions had made him think that his classmate, William Wu, was going to kill him and that he had to kill William first. 
he became fixated on a delusion again. Um, but why would he continue shooting other people if that was his main target? Well, as you said, it may have been the William Woos. It might have been him. Gotcha. He might have also panicked at the time. Who knows what happens in the moment? Remember, this is not a rational decision. A forensic psychologist, Dr. Douglas Bell, informed the jury that Alan's delusions went far beyond just William Wu. So you asked, I'm just answering this now. Um, Alan believed that not only William Wu, Amy, but all of his classmates were conspiring against him academically. Um, but that William Wu specifically was representative of all of the classmates. So you understand? Mm -hmm. yep. William Wu is like the instigator, but he believes they're all kind of following William. So this explains probably why it extended to his classmates. He also explained that paranoid delusional disorder can be incredibly hard to diagnose, and it didn't necessarily impair a person from living a successful life because Alan had been doing so up to that point. There was no possible way anyone could have predicted that Alan would shoot, you know, shoot his classmates, though. There were literally no warning signs or none that could be observed. So, again, it's possible that his frustration over not being able to communicate with his teachers and his classmates, coupled with the stress of knowing that if he failed this presentation, he'd fail out of Monash. Um, he had a lot of debt and job prospects. They may have grown these delusions against classmates against him until the stress and pressure got so heavy that he snapped. I think this is probably one way we can explain what happened. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. The psychiatrist's testimony, along with the police testimony that Allen had been deemed mentally unfit for his initial interviews with detectives the day of the murder, swayed the jury to give a verdict of not guilty by reason of mental impairment. I, I'm interested to hear what the punishment is for that in Australia. So, by the way, his trial was only two and a half days and the jury took only a half an hour to deliberate. Wow, that's really short. It's very short. It's very, very short and very concerning given the number of victims as well. Outside the courthouse, members of the victim's families waited for the verdict. And after it was announced, Dr. Gordon Brown's father told the press, quote, I just hope the experts got it right. And Xiang is not smarter than them. He went on to say how proud he was of his son for not only taking the shooter down and saving many of the students, but also that Dr. Gordon Brown returned to teaching only six weeks after the incident. That's incredible. His father told the press, isn't that? His father told the press, quote, he still has a bullet in him. He'll remember this for the rest of his life. Now, as for the sentence, Alan Xiong was sentenced to 25 years at the Thomas Embling Psychiatric Hospital. Now, due to there being no beds available at the time of sentencing, Alan was kept in prison until he could be transferred. Whoa, is, it, is that a lot? That seems like that would be a violation of some sort. Unless he was well, given special I'm care. I'm sure they, they do have some separate psychiatric units in prisons, and I don't know much about their prisons, but I imagine as long as they had him in a psychiatric type facility, because of the limited space, if nothing could be done, you have to make accommodations. What about the school, though? On the Friday following the massacre, Monash University put all their flags at half-mast in honor of the two murdered students and hosted a memorial for William Wu and Stephen Chang. Over 2,000 people attended the candlelight vigil, and the school presented William and Stephen's parents with their posthumous degrees. Students and faculty 
also painted a mural on the campus, and on the 10th anniversary of the massacre, a plaque was placed in front of the mural commemorating the memories of William Wu and Stephen Chang, as well as the survivors of the incident. Dr. Brown, Dr. Gordon Brown, Dr. Eidner, Administrator Colin Thorby, and the two students who helped subdue the shooter and administered first aid to the victims were all honored with bravery awards for their part in subduing the gunman. Dr. Gordon Brown received the two highest awards for bravery from the Royal Humane Society, including the Stanhope Gold Medal and the Star of Courage. Both Alastair and Dr. Eidner received the Gold Medal of the Royal Humane Society as well. Administrator Colin Thorby and, Bra- and Bradley Thompson received the Red Cross Community Hero Awards for their medical assistance during the shooting. This is quite the community of people who came to yeah. aid here. All right. The question still remained, though. How had Allen managed to get the five firearms he brought to the class? And how had an international student in Menashe's honor program been allowed to struggle with his language issues for such a long time with no help, which I believe was a question you asked, right, Amy? Yeah, Megan, he didn't have a history of mental illness, though, did he? Not a documented one that we know of. Okay, so then I, I don't know what the laws are in Australia, but I would imagine, actually, the, their laws are much stricter with gun ownership. But I wonder, um, you know, if they were, if he got those illegally or if he was allowed to have firearms. Well, I'm going to tell you right now. Oh, um, investigations prior to the trial revealed that Allen had purchased all of his all of his handguns legally six months before he'd opened fire on the fellow students. He joined a gun club in the spring of 2002 called the Sporting Shooters Association and often went to the club to do part to do target practice with pistols. Now, Megan, does this lead us to think this may have been premeditated in any way? It's possible. Um, that's uh, that's a number of guns to obtain, but I also don't know his interests. I mean, if he's going to a shooting club, I can tell you that competitions require several different firearms. So this this doesn't necessarily point to premeditation of the event. Um, and and again, there's no evidence to say that he began going to the shooting club because he intentions to kill anyone, or if he enjoyed the sport of shooting, which many people do, based on. The psychiatric evaluation, it wasn't also determinable when his delusions began. Now, interestingly, Australia had already done a major overhaul of their gun laws back in 1996 after the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania. In that instance, a a gunman used two semi-automatic rifles and blew through the small tourist town, killing 35 people and wounding 23 others in a random blitz attack. It's known as the worst modern-day massacre in Australian history. Following this incident, the Australian government reformed and centralized gun control regulations, which included banning most semi-automatic and pump actions, as well as strengthening general gun ownership regulations. However, Amy, most of these gun laws were relegated to long guns, so shotguns and rifles, since that's what the Port Arthur shooter had used. But after massacre committed by Alan Xiong, the government realized it needed to revisit its policies around handguns, too, which is similar, by the way, to the United States. Even though a lot of our policies are designed around long guns, it's handguns that kill most people. Mm hmm. Using similar policies and procedures they'd used back in 1996, the government initiated a national handgun buyback in 2003. Um, This had been very successful for them previously when they did it in 1996. 
They also created the National Firearms Trafficking Policy Agreement and the National Handgun Agreement of 2002. So these policies aimed at restricting the usage and availability of concealable handguns, as well as their caliber and magazine capacity. It also created a graduated access system for shooters doing legitimate sport shooting, which would inhibit club shopping. It also created a graduated access system for shooters doing legitimate sport shooting, which would inhibit club shopping. Uh, The new system required anyone wishing to join a club to provide details of any other shooting clubs they belong to and what firearms they already possessed. That's the club shopping part. Okay. These measures seem to have an effect since as of 2018, gun deaths in Australia were less than one person out of 100,000 people. Hmm. However, it's interesting to note that there wasn't much change in the decrease of gun violence after 2002. So there was a a big change after the 1996 Port Arthur incident, but not necessarily after 2002. Um, So basically, the policies following Monash Massacre, the policies following the Monash Massacre didn't seem to have much statistical effect on Australians' national numbers. Um, So I said, you know, the policies seem, these measures seem to have an effect, but there are a number of other factors that could also be contributing Mm -hmm. to the decrease in in gun deaths because the policies didn't have much of an effect when they were implemented. Mm -hmm. As there was some controversy over these policies, as Allen's situation was seen by many as an isolated incident that had less to do with his access to guns and much more to do with the academic culture that contributed to his failure. Um, which is interesting as well. We we do tend to go to the gun issue immediately, right? Mm-hmm. But as you said, there was a language issue. There was an academic culture. There was a lot of prevention possibly um, that could have taken place. A former University Language Center professor, Mike Pouliston, explained the situation for many international students in his interview with the Melbourne Age. He said the following, There are a few situations more stressful than that of being an overseas student trying to operate in a strange culture with the heavy weight of family expectations upon one. I should mention, too, that the suicides of overseas students, usually caused by unbearable stress, are rarely reported in the media. So the pressure. Also in 2002, international student tuition was Australia's third biggest service industry income, coming in at close to $4 billion a year. And as one of Australia's largest universities, Monash's student population was over 25% international students at that time, which was a 12% increase from the 90s. However, the rapid rise in overseas students' acceptance meant that the language facilities and other student support services weren't able to keep up with the demand. I don't think they did much to change the services, even with the influx of international students. And from what I understand, international students bring in more revenue for universities, so they could use that revenue to increase services. They certainly could have. This could have been cost-cutting, profit-maximization. Um, And because universities were desperate to have as many full tuition paying students, there was little regard for the student's ability to speak the language before being enrolled. I have to say this is an international issue, but one that we see in our in our universities here, it might not be a language issue, but we're admitting students now um, who possibly don't meet the criteria, the educational criteria. They come in and they're unable to pass the classes, but we're taking their money 
Um, mm-hmm. and, and they're finding out later in their careers that they're not able to meet the standards because we lowered the standards for acceptance. So I don't think this is just an international issue or a crisis. No, I think, I think universities, like anything else, they're a business and they're looking at the bottom line. And sometimes, unfortunately, a byproduct of that is a decrease in student services and students failing out or not doing well and then suffering mental illness and other issues. Yeah, I, I should also mention here that the government funding to universities was also cut back, um, making it difficult for students to provide backup facilities to help overseas students with rapid language acquisition. So it was also an issue at the time of government funding. After the massacre, the director of the Indo-Chinese Association of Melbourne explained, quote, we have to look seriously at how our universities support overseas students. Monash University and all other universities that take a lot of overseas students and in fact rely on overseas students for funds have to be seriously looked at. How much pressure are they under to take overseas students regardless of their ability? Then students are here. The universities take their money but do not support them. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a sentiment. Liz Thompson of the Monash Student Association also explained that the students in academic danger receive a letter letting them know that they're in danger of failing out. But the letter didn't contain any advice on how to contact the student union, receive help, or give contact information for a representative who could help navigate their situation. So what good is a letter telling you that you're going to fail if it has no other resources or assistance, right? that's going to affect students' mental health and make them panic without giving them anywhere to turn. That's like a recipe for disaster. I agree. Um, She further explained that most of these students were like Alan Xiong. Quote, they are international students who are extremely bright, but with the oral presentations, that is when it is discovered that they haven't got the English language capabilities. Often they are in our business, economics, It is often not getting picked up until second or third year, and there are substantial numbers. So this is a systematic problem. Okay, since the massacre, Monash has created English Connect in order to provide language assistance and intercultural competency to their overseas students, as well as expanding their English language center. I hope that that's a resource that helps. Monash University hasn't had any violent attacks since 2002, and since the late 90s, Australia has had fairly low national gun violence. However, the case of Alan Xiong's mental health and how mental illness in general is dealt with is still a looming question. Now, also remember I said Alan made headlines again recently, or Mm -hmm. in 2015. Well, in 2015, he found himself in the headlines again for stabbing one of his doctors during a counseling session at the Thomas Embling facility. Megan, I think this indicates somebody who is not ready to be back in society because you said he was only sentenced to 25 years. That's correct. Yeah. So, Um, well, according to trial notes, Alan gave his doctor a note and when she was distracted reading it, he stabbed her multiple times. Wow. So, yeah, I would say that the treatment possibly wasn't wasn't helping <laughs> um, Alan, unfortunately. While the injuries this doctor received were non-lethal, she was shocked and horrified uh, by the acts and, of course, expressed her fear and other doctors' fears about continuing treatment 
for Alan Xiong at the Thomas Embling facility. This incident brought demands for the Victorian government to review safety and staffing measures of facilities for the mentally ill, as well as demands to reconsider Allen's residency at the facility over being sent to prison. So according to records, this is interesting, Amy, because he had graduated, Allen had graduated through the, the Thomas Embling program to the least restricted area based on how he'd been progressing in therapies over the previous 13 years. Hmm. So he was apparently doing well, but his stabbing of the doctor brought into question whether or not Alan is truly capable of being rehabilitated. (sighs) I don't think anytime soon. He needs a lot more work. I think so as well. As of 2023, Alan Xiong is still at the Thomas Embling facility as there are no other facilities that can possibly take him in. There are still so many questions, Amy, about how to appropriately handle a case like Xiong. And I think what's very clear in the end is that it is not one solution. There are many, but it can't always focus on the aftermath. The problems that occur with students like Xiong have to be addressed up front. It has to be a preventive rather than a reactive approach. I totally agree. Before we go today, if you'd like to support Campus Killings, consider subscribing to the show with an Abjack Insider subscription through Apple Podcasts. Your subscription will get you VIP access to all the shows on the network that not only includes hundreds of episodes of ad-free listening, but also bonus content and early access to episodes For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting this show in the process. Head over to Apple Podcasts and search for either Campus Killings or Abjack and you can start your subscription with a free trial. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you everyone for listening today and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Abigail Belcastro. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Campus Killings. You can also visit the show's homepage at campuskillings.com. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.